CD 10. Maybe the pounding wasn't entirely necessary, he thought, while he waited for the buzzing noises and little flashing lights to go away. He gripped the pike in one hand, the rope in the other, and leapt. The most graphic way of describing the librarian's swing across the buildings of Unseen University is to simply transcribe the noises made during the flight. First, ah, 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 This is self-explanatory and refers to the early part of the swing when everything looked as if it was going well. Then, ah, This was the noise made as he missed the lurching thing by several metres and was realising that if you have tied a rope to the top of a very high and extremely solid stone tower and are now swinging towards it, failing to hit something on the way is an error which you will regret for the rest of your truncated life. The rope completed its swing. There was a noise exactly like a rubber sack full of butter hitting a stone slab, and this was followed after a moment or two by a very quiet... Oog. The pike clanged away in the darkness. The librarian spread-eagled himself starfish-like against the wall, ramming fingers and toes into every available crevice. He might have been able to climb his way down, but the option never became available because the thing reached out a flickering hand and plucked him off the wall with a noise like a sink plunger clearing a difficult blockage. It held him up to what was currently its face. The crowds flowed into the square in front of Unseen University, with the dibblers to the fore. Look at them, cut me own throat sighed. There must be thousands of them and no one's selling them anything. The wheelchair slid to a halt in another spray of sparks. Victor was waiting for it, the spectral horse flickering under him. Not one horse, but a succession of horses, not moving, but changing from frame to frame. Lightning flashed again. What's he doing? said the chair. Trying to keep it from getting to the library, said the dean, peering through the rain that was beginning to thud on the cobbles. To stay alive in reality, things need magic to hold themselves together. They've got no natural morphogenic field, you see, and... Do something! Blow it up with magic, shouted Ginger. Oh, that poor monkey! We can't use magic. That's like pouring oil on a fire, snapped the dean. Besides, I don't know how you go about blowing up a fifty-foot woman. It's not the sort of thing I've ever been called upon to do. It's not a woman. It's it's a film creature, you idiot. Do you think I'm really that big? shouted Ginger. It's using Hollywood. It's a Hollywood monster from Filmland. Steer, gods damn it, steer. I don't know how to. You just have to th throw your weight about. The bursar gripped the broomstick nervously. It's all very well for you to say, he thought. You're used to it. They'd been stepping out of the great hall when a giant woman had lurched past the gate with a gibbering ape in one hand. Now the bursar was trying to control an antique broom out of the university museum while a madman behind him feverishly tried to load a crossbow. Airborne, the Arch-Chancellor had said. It was absolutely essential that they were airborne. Can't you keep it steady? the Arch-Chancellor demanded. It's not made for two, Arch-Chancellor. Can't damn well aim with you weaving round the sky like this man. The contagious spirit of Holy Wood, whipping across the city like a steel hawser with one end suddenly cut free, sliced once again through the Arch-Chancellor's mind. We don't leave our people in there, he muttered. Apes, Arch-Chancellor, said the bursar automatically. The thing lurched towards Victor. It moved uneasily, fighting against the forces of reality that tugged at it. 
It flickered as it tried to maintain the shape it had climbed into the world with, so that images of ginger alternated with glimpses of something that writhed and coiled. It needed magic. It eyed Victor and the sword, and if it was capable of something so sophisticated as knowledge, it knew that it was vulnerable. It turned and bore down on Ginger and the wizards, who burst into flame. The Dean burned with a particularly pretty blue colour. "'Don't worry, young lady,' said the chair from the heart of his fire. "'It's illusion. It's not real.' "'You're telling me,' said Ginger. "'Get on with it!' The wizards moved forward. Ginger heard footsteps behind her. It was the Dibblers. "'Why is it frightened of the flame?' said Sol, and the thing backed away from the advancing wizards. "'It's just illusion. It must be able to feel there's no heat.' Ginger shook her head. She looked like someone surfing on a curling wave of hysteria, perhaps because it is not every day you see giant images of yourself trampling down a city. "'It's used Holywood magic,' she said, "'so it can't disobey Holywood rules.' It can't feel, it can't hear, it can only see. What it sees is what is real, and what film fears is fire. Now the giant ginger was pressed against the tower. Well, it's trapped, said Dibbler. They've got it now. The thing blinked at the advancing flames. It turned, it reached up with its free hand, it began to climb the tower. Victor slid off his horse and stopped concentrating. It vanished. Despite his panic, he found room for a tiny gloat. If only wizards had gone to the clicks, they'd have known exactly how to do it. It was the critical fusion frequency. Even reality had one. If you could only make something exist for a tiny part of a second, that didn't mean you'd failed. It meant you had to keep on doing it. He scurried crabwise along the base of the tower, staring up at the climbing thing, and tripped over something metallic. It turned out to be the librarian's dropped pike. A little further off, the end of the rope trailed in a puddle. He stared at them for a moment and then used the pike to chop a few feet off the rope to make a crude shoulder strap for the weapon. He grabbed the rope and gave it an experimental tug, and then there was an unpleasant lack of resistance to the pull. He threw himself backwards just before hundreds of feet of sodden rope smacked damply onto the paving. He looked around desperately for another route to the top. The Dibblers watched open-mouthed as the thing climbed. It wasn't moving very fast, and occasionally had to wedge the gibbering librarian into a handy buttress while it found the next handhold, but it was moving up. "'Oh, yes, yes, yes,' breathed Sol. "'What a picture! Pure kinema! "'A giant woman carrying a screaming ape up a tall building,' sighed Dibbler. "'And we're not even having to pay wages!' "'Yeah,' said Sol. "'Yeah,' said Dibbler. "'There was a tiny note of uncertainty in his voice. "'Sol looked wistful. "'Yeah,' he repeated. "'Eh, I know what you mean,' said Dibbler slowly. "'It's... I mean, it's really great, but... "'Well, I can't help feeling... "'Yeah, there's something wrong,' said Dibbler flatly. Not wrong, said Sol desperately, not exactly wrong, not wrong as such, just missing. He stopped at a loss for words. He sighed, and Dibbler sighed. Overhead the thunder rolled, and out of the sky came a broomstick with two screaming wizards on it. Victor pushed open the door at the base of the Tower of Art. It was dark inside, and he could hear water dripping down from the distant roof. The tower was said to be the oldest building in the world. It certainly felt like it. 
It wasn't used for anything now, and the internal floors had long ago rotted away, so that all that was left inside was the staircase. It was a spiral made of huge slabs set into the wall itself. Some of them were missing. It'd be a dangerous climb, even in daylight. In the dark, not a chance. The door slammed open behind him, and Ginger strode in, dragging the handleman behind her. "'Well,' she said, "'hurry up. You've got to save that poor monkey.' "'Ape,' said Victor, absently. "'Whatever. It's too dark,' Victor muttered. "'It's never too dark in the clicks,' Ginger said flatly. "'Think about it.' She nudged the handleman, who said very quickly, "'She's right. It's never dark in the clicks. Stands to reason. You've got to have enough light to see the dark by.' Victor glanced up at the gloom, and then back at Ginger. "'Listen,' he said urgently. "'If I... if something goes wrong, tell the wizards about the... you know, the pit. "'The things will be trying to break through there, too.' "'I'm not going back there!' There was a roll of thunder. "'Get going!' shouted Ginger, white-faced. "'Lights, picture box, action, and, and, and stuff like that!' Victor gritted his teeth and ran for it. There was enough light to give the darkness a shape, and he leapt from stair to stair with the magic of Holywood reciting its litany in his head. "'There has to be enough light,' he panted, "'to see the darkness.' He staggered onwards. "'And in Holywood I never run out of strength,' he added, hoping his legs would believe him. That took care of the next turn. "'And in Holywood I have to be in the nick of time,' he shouted. He leaned against the wall for a moment and fought for breath. "'Always in the nick of time,' he muttered. He started to run upwards again. The slabs passed under his feet like a dream, like squares of movie clicking through the picture box. And he'd arrived in the nick of time. Thousands of people knew he would. If heroes didn't arrive in the nick of time, where was the sense of anything? And there was no slab in front of his falling foot. His other foot was already arching to leave the step. He focused every ounce of energy into one tendon-twanging push, felt his toes hit the edge of the next slab, flung himself forward and then jumped again because it was that or snap a leg. This is nuts. He ran onward, straining to look for more missing slabs. Always in the nick of time, he muttered. So maybe he could stop and have a rest. He could still make it in the nick of time. That's what the nick of time meant. Nah, you had to play fair. There was another missing slab ahead. He stared blankly at the space. There was going to be a whole tower of this. He concentrated briefly and jumped onto nothing. The nothing became a slab for the fraction of a second he needed to jump off onto the next one. He grinned in the dark, and a sparkle of light twinkled on a tooth. Nothing created by Holywood magic was real for long, but you could make it real for long enough. Hooray for Holywood. The thing was flickering more slowly now, spending less time looking like a giant version of ginger and more looking like the contents of a taxidermist's sink trap. It pulled its dripping bulk over the top of the tower and lay there. Air whistled through its breathing tubes. Under its tentacles the rock crumbled as the magic drained away and was replaced by the hungry appetite of time. It was bewildered. Where were the others? It was alone and besieged in a strange place. And now it was angry, it extended an eye and glared at the ape struggling in what had been a hand. The thing extended a pseudopod and wrapped it around the librarian's waist, and became aware of another figure, ridiculously small, erupting from the stairwell. Victor unslung the pike from his back. What did you do now? When you were dealing with humans, you had options. You could say, hey, put down that ape and come out with your feelers up. You could... 
A claw-tipped tentacle as thick as his arm slammed down on the stones, cracking them. He leapt backwards and brought the pike around in a backhanded swipe that drew a deep yellow slash in the thing's hide. It howled and shuffled around with unpleasant speed to flail more tentacles at him. Shape, thought Victor. They've got no real shape in this world. It has to spend too much time holding itself together. The more it has to concentrate on me, the less it can concentrate on not falling to bits. An assortment of mismatched eyes extended from various bits of the thing. As they focused on Victor, they crinkled with angry bloodshot veins. Okay, he thought. I've got its attention. Now what? He stabbed at a snapping claw and jumped with his knees up under his chin when a mercifully unidentifiable pseudopod tried to chop his legs from under him. Another tentacle snaked out. An arrow passed through it with the same effect as a steel pellet shooting through a sock filled with custard. The thing screeched. The broomstick barrelled over the top of the tower with the Arch-Chancellor feverishly reloading. Victor heard a distant, If it bleeds, we can kill it! Followed by, What do you mean, we? Victor pressed forward, hacking at anything that looked vulnerable. The creature changed form, trying to thicken its hide or grow a carapace wherever the pike fell. But it wasn't fast enough. They're right. It can be killed, Victor thought. It may take all day, but it's not invincible. And then there was Ginger in front of him, her expression filled with pain and shock. He hesitated. An arrow thudded into what might have been its body. Tally-ho! Take us round again, Bertha! The image dissolved, the thing screeched, threw the librarian aside like a doll, and lurched at Victor with all tentacles at full stretch. One of them knocked him over, three others dragged the pike from his hands, and then the thing was rearing up like a leech, raising the iron pike to knock its tormentors out of the sky. Victor raised himself up on his elbows and concentrated. Just reel for long enough. The lightning bolt outlined the thing in blue and white light. After the thunderclap, the creature swayed drunkenly, with little tendrils of electricity coruscating across it and making whizzing noises. A few limbs were smoking. It was trying to hold itself together against the forces roaring around inside its body. It skewed wildly across the stone, making odd little mewling noises, and then, with one good eye glaring balefully at Victor, stepped off into space. Victor pushed himself up on his hands and knees and dragged himself to the edge. Even on the way down, the thing wasn't giving up. It was trying frantic evolutions of feather and hide and membranes in an attempt to find something that would survive the fall. Time slowed. The air took on a purple haze. Death swung his scythe. "'You belong dead,' he said. And then there was a sound like wet laundry hitting a wall, and it turned out the only thing that could survive the fall was a corpse. The crowd moved closer in the pouring rain. Now that all control was gone, the thing was dissolving into its component molecules that were washing into the gutters and down to the river and out into the cold depths of the sea. "'It's deliquescing,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Is it?' said the chair. "'I thought that was some kind of shop.' He prodded it with a foot. "'Careful,' said the dean. "'That is not dead which can eternal lie.' The chair studied it. "'It looks bloody dead to me,' he said. "'Hang on, there's something moving.' One of the outflung tentacles slumped aside. "'Did it land on someone?' said the dean. "'It did.' They pulled out the twitching body of Ponder Stibbons and prodded and patted him in a well-meant way until he opened his eyes. 
"'What happened?' he said. "'A fifty-foot monster fell on you,' said the dean simply. "'Are you, um, all right?' "'I only wanted one drink,' Ponder muttered. "'I'd have come straight back, honest.' "'What are you talking about, lad?' Ponder ignored him. He got up, swaying a bit, and staggered off towards the great hall, and never, ever went out again. "'Funny chap,' said the chair. They looked back down at the thing which had nearly dissolved. "'Twas beauty killed the beast,' said the dean, who liked to say things like that. "'No, it wasn't,' said the chair. "'It was a splatting into the ground like that.' The librarian sat up and rubbed his head. The book was thrust in front of his eyes. "'Read it,' said Victor. "'Ook! Please!' The ape opened it at a page of pictograms. He blinked at them for a moment, then his finger went to the bottom right-hand corner of the page and began to trace the signs from right to left. Right to left. That was how you were supposed to read them, Victor thought, which meant that he'd been exactly wrong all the time. Gaffer, the handleman, panned his picture box along the row of wizards and then down to the rapidly dissolving monster. The handle stopped turning. He raised his head and gave everyone a bright smile. "'If you could just bunch up tighter, gentlemen,' he said. The wizards obediently shuffled even closer. "'The light's not very good.' Sol wrote down, "'Wizards looking at the corpses, take three on a piece of card. "'Shame you didn't get the fall,' he said, the edges of his voice deckled with hysteria. "'Maybe we could stunt it up or something.' Ginger sat in the shadows by the tower, hugging her knees and trying to stop trembling. Among the shapes the thing had tried just before the end had been her own. She pulled herself upright and, holding on to the rough stonework to steady herself, walked uncertainly away. She wasn't certain what the future held, but coffee would be involved if she had any say in the matter. As she passed the tower door there was a clattering of feet and Victor staggered out with the librarian swinging along behind him. He opened his mouth to speak and started to gasp for air. The orangutan pushed him aside and grabbed Ginger firmly by the arm. It was a warm, soft grip, but with just a hint that, if he really ever needed to, the librarian could easily turn any arm into a tube of jelly with bits in it. Ook! Look, it's over, said Ginger. The monster's dead. That's how things end, OK, and now I'm going to get something to drink. Ook! Ook yourself! Victor raised his head. It's not over, he said. It is for me. I just saw myself turn into a thing with tentacles. A thing like that has a bit of an effect on a girl, you know. It's not important, Victor managed. We got it wrong. Look, they'll keep on coming now. You've got to come back to Holywood. They'll be coming through there, too. Ook, the librarian agreed, jabbing the book with a purple fingernail. Well, they can do it without me, said Ginger. No, they can't. I mean, they will anyway, but you can stop them. Oh, stop looking at me like that, he nudged the librarian. Go on, tell her. Ook, said the librarian patiently. Ook. I can't understand him, wailed Ginger. Victor's brow wrinkled. You can't? It's all just monkey noises to me. Victor's eyes swivelled sideways. Um... The librarian stood like a small prehistoric statue for a moment. Then he took Ginger's hand very gently and patted it. Ook, he said graciously. Sorry, said Ginger. Listen, said Victor, I got it wrong. You weren't trying to help them, you were just trying to stop them. I read it the wrong way round. 
It's not a man behind a gate, it's a man in front of a gate. And a man in front of a gate, he took a deep breath, is a guard. Yes, but we can't get to Hollywood, it's miles away, Victor shrugged. Go and get the handle man, he said. The land around Ark Moorpork is fertile and largely given over to the cabbage fields that help to give the city its distinctive odour. The grey light of pre-dawn unrolled over the blue-green expanse and around a couple of farmers who were making an early start on the spinach harvest. They looked up, not at a sound, but at a travelling point of silence where sound ought to have been. It was a man and a woman, and something like a size 5 man in a size 12 fur coat, all in a chariot that flickered as it moved. It bowled along the road towards Holywood and was soon out of sight. A minute or two later it was followed by a wheelchair. Its axle glowed red-hot. It was full of people screaming at one another. One of them was turning a handle on a box. It was so overburdened that wizards occasionally fell off and ran along after it, shouting, until they had a chance to jump on again and start screaming. Whoever was attempting to steer was not succeeding, and it weaved back and forth across the road and eventually hurtled off it completely and through the side of a barn. One of the farmers nudged the other. Oh, I've seen this on the clicks, he said. It's always the same. They crash into a barn and they always comes out the other side covered in squawking check-ends. His companion leaned reflectively on his hoe. It'd be a sight worth seeing that, he said. Sure would. Cause all there is in there, boy, is twenty ton of cabbage. There was a crash, and the chair erupted from the barn in a shower of chickens and headed madly towards the road. The farmers looked at one another. "'Well, dang me!' said one of them. Holywood was a glow on the horizon. The earth tremors were stronger now. The flickering chariot came out of a stand of trees and paused at the top of the incline that led down to the town. Mist wreathed Holywood. From out of it, spears of light crisscrossed the sky. "'We're too late,' said Ginger, hopefully. "'Almost too late,' said Victor. "'Ook!' said the librarian. His fingernail raced back and forth as he read the ancient pictograms. "'Right to left, right to left.' "'I knew there was something not right,' Victor had said. "'That sleeping statue, the guard, the old priest sang songs and did ceremonies to keep him awake. "'They remembered Holywood as best they could. "'But I don't know anything about a guard.' "'Yes, you do.' Like deep down inside. Ork, said the librarian, tapping a page. Ork. He says you're probably descended from the original high priestess. He thinks everyone in Holywood is descended from... You see, I mean, the first time the things broke through, the entire city was destroyed and the survivors fled everywhere, you see. But everyone had this way of remembering, even things that happened to their ancestors. I mean, it's like there's this great big pool of memory and we're linked up to it and when it all started happening again we were all called to the place and you tried to put it right only it was weak so it couldn't get through to you unless you were asleep. He trailed off helplessly. Ook, said Ginger suspiciously. You got all this from Ook? Well, not just one, Victor admitted. I've never heard such a lot of... Ginger began and stopped. A hand softer than the softest leaves was pushed into hers. She looked around into a face that compared badly to a deflated football. Ook, 
said the librarian. Ginger locked eyes with him for a moment. Then she said, But I've never felt the least bit like a high priestess. That dream you told me about, said Victor, it sounded pretty high priestessy to me. Very, very... Ooh, sacerdotal, yeah, Victor translated. It's just a dream, said Ginger nervously. I've dreamed it occasionally as far back as I can remember. Ook, ook, ook. What did he say? said Ginger. He says that's probably a lot further back than you think. Ahead of them, holy wood glittered like frost, like a city made of congealed starlight. Victor, said Ginger. Yes? Where is everybody? Victor looked down the road. Where there should have been people, refugees desperately fleeing, was nothing. Just silence and the light. Where are they? she repeated. He looked at her expression. But the tunnel fell down, he said, saying it loudly in the hope that this would make it true. It was all sealed off. It wouldn't take trolls long to clear a way through, though, said Ginger. Victor thought about the... the... cinema and the first house which had been going on for thousands of years, and all the people he knew sitting there for another thousand years, while overhead the stars changed. Of course, they might just be, well, somewhere else, he lied. But they're not, said Ginger. We both know that. Victor stared helplessly at the City of Lights. Why us, he said. Why is this happening to us? Everything has to happen to someone, said Ginger. Victor shrugged. And you only get one chance, he said, right? Just when you need to save the world, there's a world for you to save, said Ginger. Yeah, said Victor, lucky old us. The two farmers peered in through the barn doors. Stacks of cabbage waited stolidly in the gloom. Told you it were cabbage, said one of them. Knew it weren't chickens. I knows a cabbage when I says one, and I believes what I says. From far above came voices getting closer. For God's sake, man, can't you stare? Not with you throwing your weight about, Archangela. Where the hell are we? Can't see a thing in this fog. I'll just see if I can point it. Don't lean over like that. Don't lean over like that. I said don't lean. The farmers dived sideways as the broomstick corkscrewed through the open doorway and disappeared among the ranks of cabbage. There was a distant... Brassicard squelch. Eventually a muffled voice said, You leaned. Nonsense. A fine mess you've got me into. Uh, uh, what is it? Cabbages, Arch-Chancellor. Some kind of vegetable? Yes. Can't stand uh, vegetables. Thins the blood. There was a pause. Then the farmers heard the other voice say, Well, I'm very sorry about that, you bloodthirsty, overbearing tub of lard. There was another pause. Then, can I sack you, Bursa? No, Arch-Chancellor, I've got tenure. In that case, help me out and let's go and find a drink. The farmers crept away. Dang me, said the believer in cabbages. They're wizards. Best not to meddle in the affairs of dang wizards. Yeah, said the other farmer. Er, what does dang mean, exactly? It was the time of the silence. Nothing moved in Holywood except the light. It flickered slowly, Holywood light, Victor thought. There was a feeling of dreadful expectation. 
If a movie set was a dream waiting to be made real, then the town was one step further up the scale, a real place waiting for something new, something that ordinary language couldn't define. Huh? he said, and stopped. Hmm? said Ginger. Huh? Hmm? They stared at one another for a moment. Then Victor grabbed her hand and dragged her into the nearest building, which turned out to be the commissary. The scene inside was indescribable and remained so until Victor found the blackboard that was used for what was laughingly referred to as the menu. He picked up the chalk. I'm talking, but I can't hear me, he wrote, and solemnly handed her the chalk. Me too. Why? Victor tossed the chalk up and down thoughtfully and then wrote, I think because we never invented sound movies. If we didn't have imps that could paint in colour, maybe there would be just black and white here too. They stared at the scene around them. There were untouched or half-eaten meals on almost every table. This wasn't particularly unusual at Borgles, but normally they were accompanied by people complaining bitterly. Ginger delicately dipped a finger in the nearest plate. Still warm, she mouthed. Let's go, said Victor quietly, pointing at the door. She tried to say something complicated, scowled at his blank expression and wrote, We should wait for the wizards. Victor stood frozen for a moment, then his lips shaped a phrase that Ginger would not admit to knowing, and he made a dash for the outside. The overloaded chair was already bowling along the street with smoke billowing from its axles. He jumped up and down in front of it, waving his arms. A long, silent conversation went on. There was a lot of chalking on the nearest wall. Finally, Ginger couldn't contain her impatience any longer and hurried over. You've got to stay away. If they break through, you will be a meal. So will you. This was neater handwriting. It was the Dean's. Victor wrote, Except I think I know what's happening. Anyway, you will be needed if it goes wrong. He nodded at the Dean and hurried back to Ginger and the librarian. He gave the ape a worried look. Technically, the librarian was a wizard. At least, when he'd been human, he was a wizard, so presumably he still was. On the other hand, he was also an ape, and a handy man to have around in an emergency. He decided to risk it. Come on, he mouthed. It was easy enough to find the way to the hill. Where there had been a path, there was now a broad trail, poignantly scattered with the debris of hurried passage. A sandal, a discarded picture box, a trailing red feather boa. The door into the hill had been torn off its hinges. A dull glow came from the tunnel. Victor shrugged and marched inside. The debris hadn't been cleared right away, but it had been pushed aside and flattened down to allow the crowd to go through. The ceiling hadn't fallen in. This wasn't because of the debris. It was because of detritus. He was holding it up. Nearly up. He was already down on one knee. Victor and the librarian stacked boulders around the troll until he could let the weight off his shoulders. He groaned, or at least looked as if he'd groaned, and toppled forwards. Ginger helped him up. What happened? she mouthed at him. Hmm? Detritus looked puzzled at the absence of his voice and tried to squint at his mouth. Victor sighed. He had a vision of the Holywood people stampeding blindly along the passage, the trolls scrabbling at the blockage. 
Since Detritus was the toughest, naturally he'd play a major part. And since the only function he normally used his brain for was to stop the top of his head falling in, equally naturally, he'd be the one left holding up the weight on the hill. Victor imagined him calling out unheard as the rest of them hurried by. He wondered whether to write him a cheery message, but in Detritus's case this was almost certainly a waste of time. Anyway, the troll wasn't about to hang around. He loped off along the tunnel with a grim look on his face, concentrating fiercely on some private errand of his own. His trailing knuckles left two furrows in the dust. The passage opened out into the cavern, which was, Victor now realised, a sort of antechamber to the pit itself. Maybe thousands of years ago, supplicants had flocked out here to buy, what, consecrated sausages, maybe? And the holy banged grains? Spectral light filled it now. It was still full of damp and ancient mould wherever Victor looked. Yet wherever he didn't look, at the edges of his vision, he kept getting the feeling that the place was decorated like a palace with red plush draperies and baroque gold decorations. He kept turning his head sharply, trying to trap the ghostly glittering image. He met the librarian's worried frown and chalked on the cave wall, Realities merging? The librarian nodded. Victor winced and led his little group of Holywood gorillas, at least two gorillas and one orangutan, up the worn steps into the pit. Victor realised later that it was Detritus who saved them all. They took one look at the swirling images on the obscene screen and dream, reality, believe, await, and Detritus tried to walk through them. Images designed to trap and throw a glamour over any sapient mind bounced off the back of his rocky skull and came right out again. He paid them no attention at all. He had other fish to fry. The trollish phrase is, other maddened grizzly bears to stun. Being trampled almost to death by a preoccupied troll is almost the ideal cure for a person confused about what is real and what isn't. Reality is something walking heavily up your spine. Victor hauled himself back onto his feet, pulled the others towards him, pointed to the flickering, bulging oblong at the other end of the hall, and mouthed, Don't look! They nodded. Ginger gripped his arm tightly as they inched their way down the aisle. All of Holywood was there. They saw faces they knew ranged along the seats, immobile in the shivering light, every expression nailed in place. He felt her nails dig into his skin. There was Rock and Morrie and Frontkin from the commissary, and Mrs Cosmopolite, the wardrobe lady. There was Silverfish and a row of other alchemists. There were the carpenters and the handlemen, and all the stars that never were, all the people who had held horses or cleaned tables or stood in queues and waited and waited for their big chance. Lobsters, thought Victor. There was a great city and lots of people died, and now it's the home of lobsters. The librarian pointed. Detritus had found Ruby in the very front row and was trying to pull her out of her seat. Whichever way he moved her, her eyes swivelled towards the dancing images. When he stood in front of her, she blinked for a moment, scowled, and knocked him aside. Then her expression slid back to vacuity, and she settled into her seat. Victor laid a hand on his shoulder, and made what he hoped would be soothing, beckoning motions. Detritus's face was a fresco of misery. The suit of armour was still on the slab behind the screen in front of the tarnished disc. They stared at it hopelessly. Victor tentatively drew his finger through the dust. It left a streak of shiny yellow metal. He looked at Ginger. What now? he mouthed. She shrugged. It meant, how should I know? I was asleep before. The screen above them was bulging very fatly now. How long before the things came through? 
Victor tried shaking the, well, call it a man, a very tall man, in seamless gold armour. Might as well try to shake awake a mountain. He reached over and tried to free the sword, although it was longer than he was, and even if he could lift it, would be as manoeuvrable as a barge. It was gripped fast. The librarian was trying to read the book by the light of the screen, feverishly thumbing through the pages. Victor chalked on the side of the slab, "'Can't you think of anything at all?' Ginger took the chalk. "'No, you woke me up. I don't know how to do it, whatever it is.' The fourth exclamation mark only failed to be completed because the chalk snapped. There was a distant ping as part of it hit something. Victor took the other half out of her hand. "'Maybe you should have a look at the book,' he suggested. The librarian nodded and tried to put the book in her hands. She waved him off for a moment and stood staring into the shadows. She took the book. She looked from the ape to the troll to the man. Then she pulled her arm back and hurled the book away from her. This time it wasn't a ping, it was a definite low and very resonant boom. Something could make a noise in the place with no sound. Victor skidded around the slab. The big disc was a gong. He tapped it. Bits of corrosion fell off, but the metal shivered under the light blow and gave out another tinny rumble under his touch. Below it, now that his eyes were instinctively seeking it out, was a six-foot metal pole with a padded ball at one end. He grabbed it and heaved it off its supports, or tried to at least. It was rusted solidly in place. The librarian positioned himself at the other end, caught Victor's eye, and this time they hauled on it together. Flakes of rust dug into Victor's hands. It was immovable. The gong hammer and its supports had been turned by time and salt air into one single metallic hole. Then time seemed to slow and became a series of frozen events in the flickering light, like moving pictures sliding through the box. Click. Detritus reached down over Victor's head, grasped the hammer by its middle, and lifted it up, tearing the rusted supports out of the very rock. Click. They threw themselves flat as he gripped it in both hands, flexed his muscles, and took a swing at the gong. Click, 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 click. Caught in a series of tableau, Detritus appeared to move instantly into, click, different but connected positions as he pivoted on one horny foot, the hammer head, click, making a bright arc in the darkness. Click. The impact knocked the gong so far backwards that the chains broke and it slammed against the wall of the pit. Sound came back quickly and in vast quantities, as though it had been dammed up somewhere and had then suddenly been released to slosh joyfully back into the world and drown every eardrum. <laughs> Click. The giant figure on the slab sat up slowly, dust cascading off it in slow streams. Underneath it was gold, untarnished by the years. It moved slowly but deliberately, as though propelled by clockwork. One hand grasped the giant sword, the other gripped the edge of the slab to steady the figure as its long, tapering legs swung down to the ground. It stood upright, ten feet tall, rested its hands on the hilt of the sword, and halted. It didn't look very much different from its posture on the slab, but this time there was an air of alertness about it, a sense of huge energies idly ticking over. It paid no attention at all to the four who had woken it. The screen stopped its wild pulsating. Something had sensed the presence of the golden man and was focusing its attention on him, which meant that it was temporarily removing it from elsewhere. There was a stirring from the audience. They were waking up. 
Victor grabbed the librarian and detritus. You two, he said, get everyone out of here. Get them out of here fast. Ook! The Hollywood people didn't need much encouragement. Seeing the shapes on the screen clearly without the cushion of hypnosis was enough to make anything brainier than detritus have a sudden urge to be a long way away. Victor could see them struggling over the seats, fighting to escape from the pit. Ginger started to follow them. Victor stopped her. Not yet, he said quietly. Not us. What do you mean? she demanded. He shook his head. We have to be the last ones out, he said. It's all part of Holywood. You can use the magic, but it uses you too. Besides, don't you want to see how it all ends? I had rather hoped to see how it all ends from a long way off. OK, look at it another way. It's going to take a couple of minutes for them to get out. We might as well have a clear run at it, eh? They could hear shouts in the antechamber as the former audience piled into the tunnel. Victor walked up the suddenly deserted aisle to the back row and sat down in a vacated seat. I hope old detritus is bright enough not to be left holding up the ceiling again, he said. Ginger sighed and sat down next to him. Victor put his feet up on the seat in front of him and fumbled in his pockets. Would you like, he said, some banged grains? The golden man was just visible under the screen. His head was bowed. You know, he does look like my Uncle Oswald, said Ginger. The screen went dark with such suddenness the inrushing blackness almost made a noise. This must have happened many times before, Victor thought. In dozens of universes, the wild idea arrives and somehow the golden man, the Oswald or whatever, arises to control it, or something. Maybe wherever Holywood goes, Osric follows. A point of purple light appeared and grew faster very quickly. Victor felt that he was dropping down a tunnel. The golden figure raised its head. The light twisted and took on random features. The screen wasn't there anymore. This was something entering the world. It wasn't an image at the other end of the hall, but something frantically trying to exist. The golden man drew back his sword. Victor shook Ginger's shoulder. I think this is where we leave, he said. The sword connected. Golden light filled the cave. Victor and Ginger were already racing down the steps of the antechamber when the first shock hit. They stared at the tunnel's empty mouth. Not on your life, said Ginger. I'm not going to be trapped in there again. The flooded stairs lay in front of them. Of course, they must connect to the sea, and really it was only a few yards away, but the water was inky black and, in Gaspode's word, boding. Can you swim? said Victor. One of the cavern's rotting pillars crashed down behind them. From the pit itself came a terrible wailing. Not very well, said Ginger. Me neither, he said. The commotion behind them was getting worse. Still, he said, taking her hand, we could look on this as a great opportunity to improve really quickly. They jumped. Victor surfaced fifty yards offshore, lungs bursting. Ginger erupted a few feet away. They trod water and watched. The earth trembled. Holywood Town, built of unseasoned wood and short nails, was shaking apart. Houses folded down on themselves slowly like packs of cards. Here and there small explosions indicated that stores of octocellulose were involved. Canvas cities and plaster mountains slid into ruin. And between it all, dodging the falling timber but letting nothing else stand in their way, the people of Holywood ran for their lives. Handlemen, actors, alchemists, imps, trolls, dwarfs. They ran like ants whose ant heap is ablaze, heads down, legs pumping, eyes fixed furiously on the horizon. A whole section of hill caved in. For a moment, Victor thought he saw the huge golden figure of Osbert, as insubstantial as dust motes in a shaft of light, rise over Holywood and bring its sword around in one all-embracing sweep. Then it was gone. Victor helped Ginger ashore. 
They reached the main street, silent now except for the occasional creak and thud as another plank dropped off the half-collapsed buildings. They picked their way over fallen scenery and broken picture boxes. There was a crash behind them as the Century of the Fruit Bat sign slipped off its moorings and thudded on the sand. They passed the remains of Borgel's commissary, whose destruction had increased the average food quality of the entire world by a small but significant amount. They waded through unreeled clicks, flapping in the wind. They climbed over broken dreams. At the edge of what had been Holy Wood, Victor turned and looked back once. Well, they were right at last, he said. You'll never work in this town again. There was a sob. To his surprise, Ginger was crying. He put his arm around her. Come on, he said. I'll walk you home. Holywood's own magic, now rootless and fading, crackled across the landscape, looking for pathways to earth itself. Click. It was early evening. The reddened light of the setting sun filled the windows of Hargus House of Ribs, which was nearly deserted at this time of day. Detritus and Ruby sat awkwardly on human-sized chairs. The only other person around was Sham Hager himself, smearing the dirt more evenly around the vacant tables with a cloth and whistling vaguely. Uh, Detritus ventured. Yes, said Ruby expectantly. Uh, nothing, said Detritus. He felt out of place here, but Ruby had insisted. He kept feeling she wanted him to say something, but all he could think of was hitting her with a brick. Hager stopped whistling. Detritus felt his head twist round, his mouth opened. "'Play it again, Sham,' said Holywood. There was a crashing chord. The back wall of the House of Ribs moved aside into whatever dimension these things go, and an indistinct but unmistakable orchestra occupied the space normally filled by Hager's kitchen and the noisome alley behind it. Ruby's dress became a waterfall of sequins. The other tables whirled away. Detritus adjusted an unexpected tuxedo and cleared his throat. "'There may be trouble ahead,' he began, the words flowing straight from somewhere else into his vocal cords. He took Ruby's hand. A gold-tipped cane hit his left ear. A black silk hat materialised at high speed and bounced off his elbow. He ignored them. "'But while there's moonlight and music,' he faltered. The golden words were fading. The walls came back. The tables reappeared. The sequins flared and died. Um, said Detritus suddenly. She was watching him intently. Uh, sorry, he said. Do you know what come over me there? Hager strode up to the table. What was all that? he began. Without shifting her gaze, Ruby shot out a tree-trunk arm, spun him round, and pushed him through the wall. Kiss me, you mad fool, she said. Detritus's brow wrinkled. What? he said. Ruby sighed. Well, so much for the human way. She picked up a chair and hit him scientifically over the head with it. A smile spread across his face, and he slumped forwards. She picked him up easily and slung him over her shoulder. If Ruby had learned anything in Holywood, it was that there was no use in waiting around for Mr Wright to hit you with a brick. You had to make your own bricks. Click. In a dwarf mine miles and miles from the loam of Ankh Morpork, a very angry overseer banged on his shovel for silence and spoke thusly. I want to make this absolutely clear, right? One more, and I really mean it, one more, right? Just one more, hi-ho, 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 out of you bloody lawn ornaments, and it's double-headed axe time, OK? We're dwarfs, goddammit, so act like them, and that includes you, Dozy. Click, 
make my day call me Mr. Thumpy, hopped to the top of the dune and peered over. Then he slid back down again. All clear, he reported. No humans, just ruins. A place of our own, said the cat happily. A place where all animals, regardless of shape or species, can live together in perfect... The duck quacked. The duck says, said call me Mr. Thumpy and die. It's got to be worth a try. If we're going to be sapient, we might as well get good at it. Come on. Then he shivered. There had been something like a faint tang of static electricity. For a moment, the little area in the sand dunes wavered as in a heat haze. The duck quacked again. Not Mr. Thumpy wrinkled his nose. It was suddenly hard to concentrate. The duck says, he wavered, the duck says, uh, says, uh, the duck says, uh, says, quack. The cat looked at the mouse. Meow, it said. The mouse shrugged. Squeak, it commented. The rabbit wrinkled its nose uncertainly. The duck squinted at the cat. The cat stared at the rabbit. The mouse peered at the duck. The duck rocketed upwards. The rabbit became a fast-disappearing cloud of sand. The mouse tore over the dunes, and feeling a lot happier than it had done for weeks, the cat ran after it. Click. Ginger and Victor sat at a table in the corner of the mended drum. Eventually, Ginger said, They were good dogs. Yes, said Victor distantly. Mari and Rock have been digging through the rubble for ages. They said there's all kinds of cellars and things down there. I'm sorry. Yes. Maybe we ought to put up a statue to them or something. I'm not sure about that, said Victor. I mean, considering what dogs do to statues. Maybe dogs dying is all part of Holywood. I don't know. Ginger traced the outline of a knothole on the tabletop. It's all over now, she said. You do know that, don't you? No more Holywood. It's all over. Yes. The patrician and the wizards won't let anyone make any more clicks. The patrician was very definite about it. I don't think anyone wants to make any, said Victor. Who's going to remember Holywood now? What do you mean? Those old priests built a kind of half-baked religion around it. They forgot all about what it really was. That didn't matter, though. I don't think you need chants and fires. You just need to remember Holywood. We need someone to remember Holywood really well. Yeah, said Ginger, grinning. You'd need a thousand elephants. Yeah, Victor laughed. Poor old Dibbler, he said. He never got them either. Ginger moved a fragment of potato round and round on her plate. There was something on her mind, and it wasn't food. But it was great, wasn't it? she burst out. We had something really amazing, didn't we? Yes. People really thought that it was good, didn't they? Oh, yes, said Victor somberly. I mean, didn't we bring something really great into the world? No kidding. I didn't mean that. Being a screen goddess isn't all it's cracked up to be, you know said Ginger. Right. Ginger sighed. No more Holywood magic, she said. I think there may be some left, said Victor. Where? Just drifting around, finding ways to use itself up, I expect. Ginger stared at her glass. What are you going to do now, she said. Dunno. How about you? Go back to the farm, maybe? Why? Holywood was my chance, don't you see? There aren't many jobs for women in Ankh-Morpork. At least, she added, none that I'd care to do. I've had three offers of marriage from quite important men. Have you? Why? She frowned. Hey, I'm not that unattractive. Oh, I didn't mean it like that, said Victor hurriedly. 
Oh, I suppose if you're a powerful merchant, it's nice to have a famous wife. It's like owning jewellery. She looks down. Mrs. Cosmopolite says, can she have one of the ones I don't want? I said she could have all three. I've always been that way about choices myself, said Victor, cheering up. Have you? If that's all the choices there is, I'm not choosing. What can you be after you've been yourself as big as possible? Nothing, said Victor. No one knows what it feels like. Except us. Yes. Yes. Ginger grinned. It was the first time Victor had ever seen her face shorn of petulance, anger, worry, or Hollywood makeup. Cheer up, she said. Tomorrow is another day. Click. Sergeant Colon, Ankh-Morpork City Watch, was awakened from his peaceful doze in the guardhouse over the main gate by a distant rumbling. A cloud of dust stretched from horizon to horizon. He watched it thoughtfully for some time. It grew bigger and eventually disgorged a dark-skinned young man riding an elephant. It trotted up the road to the gates and lumbered to a halt at the city wall. The dust cloud, Colon couldn't help noticing, was still on the horizon and still getting bigger. The boy cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted, "'Can you tell me the way to Hollywood?' "'There ain't no Hollywood any more from what I hear,' said Colon. The boy appeared to consider this. He looked down at a piece of paper in his hand. Then he said, "'Do you know where I can find Mr. C.M.O.T. Dibbler?' Sergeant Colon repeated the initials under his breath. "'You mean throat?' he said. "'Cut me on throat, Dibbler.' Is he in? Sergeant Colon glanced at the city behind him. I'll just go and see, he said. Who shall I say wants him? We've got a delivery for him, C-O-D. Cod, hazarded Colon, glancing at the lowering cloud. You're herding fish? Not fish. Huge grey foreheads were becoming visible in the dust. There was also the very distinctive smell you get when a thousand elephants have been foraging for days in cabbage fields. Just hang on, he said. I'll go and fetch him. Colon pulled his head back into the guardroom and nudged the sleeping form of Corporal Nobbs, currently the other half of the keen-eyed fighting force that was ceaselessly guarding the city. What's that? You seen old throat this morning, Nobby? Yeah, he was an easy street. Bought a jumbo sausage surprise off him. He's back selling sausages. Got to. Lost all his money. What's up? Just take a look outside, will you? said Colon in a level voice. Nobby took a look. Looks like... Would you say it was a thousand elephants, Sarge? Yeah, about a thousand, I'd say. Thought it looked about a thousand. Man down there says throat ordered them, said Sergeant Colon. Get away. He's going into the jumbo sausage thing in a big way, then. Their eyes met. Nobby's grin was evil. Oh, go on, he said. Let me go and tell him, please. Click. Thomas Silverfish, alchemist and failed click producer, stirred the contents of a crucible and sighed wistfully. A lot of gold had been left behind in Holywood for anyone who had the nerve to go and dig for it. For those who hadn't, and Silverfish wouldn't hesitate to put himself first among that number, there were the old, tried-and-tested, or, to put it another way, tried-and-repeatedly-failed methods of wealth production. So now he was back home, picking up where he had left off. "'Any good?' said Peavy, who had dropped in to commiserate. "'Well, it's silvery,' said Silverfish doubtfully. 
"'And it's sort of metallic, and it's heavier than lead. "'You have to cook up a ton of ore, too. "'Funny thing is, I thought I was onto something this time. "'I really thought that this time we were on the way to a new, clear future.' "'What are you going to call it?' said PV. "'Oh, I don't know. "'It's probably not worth naming,' said Silverfish. "'Ank more porkery. "'Silverfishium. "'Not leadium,' said PV. "'Uselessium, more like,' murmured Silverfish. "'I'm giving up on it and going back to something sensible.' PV peered into the furnace. "'It doesn't go boom, does it?' he said. Silverfish gave him a withering look. "'This stuff?' he said. "'Whatever gave you that idea?' Click. It was pitch dark under the rubble. It had been pitch dark for a long time. Gaspode could feel the tons of stone above this little space. You didn't need any special doggy senses for that. He dragged himself over to where a pillar had smashed down into the cellar. Laddie raised his head with difficulty, licked Gaspode's face, and managed the faintest of barks. Good boy, Laddie. Good boy, Gaspode. Good boy, Laddie, Gaspode whispered. Laddie's tail thumped once or twice on the stones, then he whimpered for a while with longer and longer pauses between the sounds. Then there was a faint noise, just like bone on stone. Gaspode's ears twitched. He looked up at the advancing figure, visible even in utter darkness because it would forever be darker than mere blackness alone could manage. He pulled himself upright, the hairs rising along his back, and growled. "'Another step and I'll have your leg off and bury it,' he said. A skeletal hand reached out and tickled him behind the ears. There was a faint barking from the darkness. Good boy, laddie. <laughs> Gaspode, tears pouring down his face, gave death an apologetic grin. Pathetic, isn't it? he said hoarsely. I wouldn't know. I've never been that much of a dog person, said death. Oh, come to that. I've never really liked the idea of dying, said Gaspode. We are dying, ain't we? Yes. Not surprised, really. Story of my life dying, said Gaspode. It's just that I thought, he added hopefully, that there was a special death for dogs. A big black dog, maybe? No, said Death. Funny that, said Gaspode. I heard where every type of animal had its own ghastly dark spectre what come for it at the end. No offence meant he added quickly. I thought there was this big dog that trots up to you and says, OK, Gaspard, your work is done and so forth. Lay down your weary burden, style of thing, and follow me to a land flowing with steak and offal. No, there's just me, said Death. The final frontier. How come I'm seeing you if I ain't dead yet? You're hallucinating. Gaspard looked alert. Am I? Sure. "'Good boy, laddie!' The barking was louder this time. Death reached into the mysterious recesses of his robe and produced a small hourglass. There was almost no sand left in the top bulb. The last seconds of Gaspode's life hissed from the future to the past. And then there were none at all. Death stood up. "'Come, Gaspode!' There was a faint sound. It sounded like the audible equivalent of a twinkle. Golden sparks filled the hourglass. The sand flowed backwards. Death grinned. And then, where he had been, there was a triangle of brilliant light. Ooh, ooh, good boy, laddie. 
There he are. Told you I hear barking, said the voice of Rock. Good boy. Here, boy. Oh, am I glad to see you, Gaspode began. The trolls clustering around the opening paid him no attention at all. Rock heaved the pillar aside and gently lifted Laddie up. Nothing wrong that time won't heal, he said. Can we eat it now, said a troll above him. You defective or something, this one heroic dog. Excuse me. Good boy, laddie. Rock handed up the dog and climbed out of the hole. Excuse me, Gaspode croaked after him. He heard a distant cheer. After a while, since there didn't seem to be much of an alternative, he crawled painfully up the sloping pillar and managed to drag himself out onto the rubble. No one was around. He had a drink out of a puddle. He stood up, testing the injured leg. It'd do. And finally, he swore. Woof, woof, woof. He paused again. That wasn't right. He tried again. Woof. He looked around, and colour drained out of the world, returning it to a state of blessed blacks and whites. It occurred to Gaspode that Harger would be throwing out the trash around now, and then there was bound to be a warm stable somewhere, and what more did a small dog need? Somewhere in the distant mountains, wolves were howling. Somewhere in friendly houses, dogs with collars and dishes with their names on were being patted on the head. Somewhere in between, and feeling oddly cheerful about it, Gaspode the Wonder Dog limped into the gloriously monochrome sunset. About thirty miles turnwise of Ark Moorpork, the surf boomed on the wind-blown, seagrass-waving and sand-dune-covered spit of land where the Circle Sea met the Rim Ocean. Sea swallows dipped low over the waves. The dried heads of sea poppies clattered in the perpetual breeze, which scoured the sky of clouds and moved the sand around in curious patterns. The hill itself was visible for miles. It wasn't very high, but lay amongst the dunes like an upturned boat or a very unlucky whale and was covered in scrub trees. No rain fell here, if it could possibly avoid it. But the wind blew and piled the dunes against the dried-out, bleached wood of Holywood Town. It howled its auditions on the deserted backlots. It tumbled scraps of paper through the crumbling plaster wonders of the world. It rattled the boards until they fell into the sand and were covered. The wind sighed around the skeleton of a picture-throwing box, leaning drunkenly on its abandoned tripod. It caught a trailing scrap of film and wound out the last picture show, snaking the crumbling, glistening snake across the sand. In the picture-thrower's glass eye, tiny figures danced jerkily, alive just for a moment. Click, 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 click. The film broke free and whirled away over the dunes. Click, 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 click. The handle swung backwards and forward for a moment and then stopped. Click. Hollywood Dreams. That is the end of Moving Pictures, written by Terry Pratchett, and it was read by Nigel Planer.